You're listening to the preaching ministry of First Baptist Church in Newton, North Carolina. By God's grace and for His glory, we're striving to be a community of disciples who are growing in trust, growing in love, and growing disciples. We pray you'll be encouraged to deeply love and trust our Savior Jesus Christ through this ministry. We hope you enjoy the sermon. I sent out an email earlier asking the question, what are your deepest fears? And at the time I sent that email out, um, COVID-19 was really something that was far away and really didn't have any bearing on our life now. And we're here this morning and all that has drastically changed. If you're like most people now, the fear is no longer a foreign concept. But in reality, if we're honest, fear is never far from any one of us. Let me start by reading at least part of the responses that some of you sent to me. Obviously, everyone is afraid of a coffee and chocolate shortage. But but besides all that, the answers were all serious. Here's the first one. My deepest fear is of people being disappointed in me. Here's another. Watching my loved ones suffer physically and dying, mainly thinking of my aging parents here, or suffering emotionally without reconciliation of broken relationships here. My children making poor choices for a spouse. Finishing school and being out in the real world and maybe not liking my job, therefore wasting my time and my parents' money on my education. Here's another one. When I read your question earlier this week about what our deepest fears are, the first one that came to my mind is spending my life alone. I dread the thought of being alone and basically forgotten. Here's the last one. I still struggle believing I am saved no matter what. So sometimes my greatest fear is not going to heaven. But I am relying that I have no claim except Jesus' blood and righteousness So then I look at my life and I see so much selfishness, so many missed opportunities, so little sharing of the gospel, so little worship and joy in the gospel and God's word, so little fruit of any kind that though I would love to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, I fear I never never will and that will simply die all over again of shame. Anybody relate? What do you fear? What are you afraid of? It's very easy for us to say, oh, I'm not afraid of anything. But I want you to listen to me. You may say, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm a brave person. Courage is my middle name. But your anger shows us not the case. In a lot of ways, your determination shows that's not the case. Your stubbornness, your desire to control shows that's not the case. And, And even your apathy can show that's not the case. When I started this study, I hear some things that I, I wrote down. I'm afraid of failing as a husband, a father, or a pastor. I'm afraid of not being able to provide for my family. I'm afraid of losing my children's hearts. And, and as I age, um, there are times I'm afraid of losing my mind and being really mean. This morning, the reality is that I'm afraid of things. And you're afraid of things. 
And these fears hold us back. These fears keep us from doing what God intended. They keep us from going all out for what God has called us to do because we're afraid to fail or we're afraid of what people might think of us. Now, here's the thing. I know that's not right. I want victory. You know it's not right. And I want you to have victory. So if you will, open your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm going to read down to verse 16. This is the passage that we studied two weeks ago, but this morning what I want to do is I want to work to apply the message of this passage. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, that they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bershah, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shimber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer, the kings that were with him, came and defeated the Raphaim in Ashtaroth Kiranim, and the Zuzim and Ham and, and Emim in Shava Kirathim, and the Horites in Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazon Tamar. And the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah and the king of Adma and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. And they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim, against Chedorlaomer, king of Elim, and Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Isco and brother of Anar, and these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken, he led out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot, and his possessions, and also the women and the people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I love this story. I pray, Father, that you would bring the same same reality that Abram believed, that you would give us grace to believe, so that we could say, the Lord is for me. I will not fear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And we, we went over this text in detail two weeks ago, and so I'm not going to rehash all of those things. But what I do want us to do is I want us to apply the message of this story. When we looked at this story, we, when we studied this text, we saw a man, Abram. 
a Hebrew, leave the safety of his home to embark on what looked like a suicide mission to pick a fight with four kings who had just plowed through his country like a steamroller. He went to rescue his somewhat estranged nephew. And when we study this story, we worship the Savior who left the comforts of heaven to come to earth to fight in our place the enemies of sin and death and Satan and to rescue very much estranged sinners. And we praise that Savior because not only was He courageous, He was victorious. And I told you then that I wanted to come back to this text and I wanted to ask the question, where do I get that kind of courage? Where do I get Abram kind of courage? Because I want it. And the people in my life, and this community, this world desperately needs us to have it. Don't our families need daddies who aren't afraid to lead and to love and to discipline and to get up every day and to work so that they might, they might overcome all the obstacles to raising a godly family? Don't we need parents who are courageous enough to tell their kids what they don't want to hear? Don't we need the church? To, don't we need Christians not to be afraid to be bold and to take risk and to do things that we've never done before so that God's people will be grown to maturity and protected from error? I need to remind you that to, that, to, that to serve Christ in this culture takes courage. Doesn't, doesn't, besides all that, the world needs us to be brave enough, to be bold and servant-hearted, to graciously, humbly, with broken hearts, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, we read of these wicked kings capturing an enslaving lot. And we need to see this morning that Lot is not alone. We live in a world where people have been captured and enslaved. Enslaved to lust. Enslaved to pride. Enslaved to sensual pleasure. Enslaved to immediate gratification. Enslaved to alcohol, drugs, sin, self, fear, and false gospels. Other, other suffers at the hand of other masters. Poverty, depression, abusers, and even sex traffickers. A faithless church will be a cowardly church and will have no impact. So, so you with me? Yeah. We need courageous faith. Where do we get it? Before I answer that question, what I want to do is I want to acknowledge one of the massive obstacles that keep us from it, and I'm going to call them the false sermons of fear. On my bookshelves, in my library, there are only two books that I have turned around backwards. I don't want anybody, when I die, to see those books on my shelf and think I'm endorsing those books. I have lots of books from people that I don't agree everything on. But I only have two books that are turned around backwards. I don't want you to see the cover. And on one of these books, I have written, this is a bad book. It's Joel Osteen's book, Your Best Life Now. I hate that book. I hate the message of that book, and I know it's a strong thing to say, but I hate the message of the book. Because here's what Joel Osteen does. He, make, he offers the promises of God without Christ. I want to remind you, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and the whole rest of the Bible, they make it clear that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He says in Ephesians 1, with a view to an administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Therefore, Joel Osteen's message is false. But here's what I'm concerned about this morning. I'm concerned that there is an even more dangerous message, and it is the message that our fears preach to us every day. Ed Welch has it exactly right when he says, fear and worry are prophecies. When you worry, you are acting in your own heart and head as a prophet. Right? You are making predictions about the future. You are claiming to know what the future is going to hold, that the future is going to be bad, and you're making decisions now based on the prophecies that your fears are making in your own head. Let me ask you this question. How many times have you made yourself sick worrying about something that, that you got to see God working everything out? I love looking back at my journal. I keep a, a journal of prayers. And I love looking back at all the things that I have in the past been so worried about. I'm never going to survive this. Oh God, you've got to help me. And then to look back years later and say he worked it all out. Here's my point. At least for me, I'm a terrible prophet. I can be a real worrier. I'm not a good prophet. And neither are you. So so you tell me, what does the Bible tell us to do with false prophets? To kill them. Stop listening to them. Stop obeying their prophecies. But there's more. What do your fears preach inside your own head about God? When, when, you are, when you are anxious and worrying and overcome with fear, you're living like a practical atheist. There is no God. And if there is a God, He doesn't care about me. He doesn't see. He isn't powerful. He isn't good. Your fears tell you that God is weak. That He is unwise. That His motives are bad. Those are lies. So what I want us to do is I want us to think in terms of this crisis that we have on our hands right now. And here's my question for you. Is it possible that God is up to something in this COVID-19 crisis? Is it possible that God is at work in this? Of course it's possible. This is why I'm really used to human interaction. So this is kind of hard for me. So I just say, Curse you, COVID nineteen. I really want so so the few people who are here, you can you can you can participate with me. Is it possible that God is doing something with this crisis in front of our hands? And here's what I want us to see: If God is up to something, then what He's up to is good. Let me show you this. Where did my clicker go, Mark? I don't know where my clicker is, so you have to click for me. I'm sorry. It's very important for us to get this. And I hope our hearts hear this and remember this and believe it. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways 
are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. Psalm 92.15, the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in Him. Psalm 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and His faithfulness to all generations. Next slide. Psalm 145. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. Isaiah 25. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name for You have worked wonders. Plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Daniel 4 verse 37. All His works are true and His ways just. 1 John 1 5. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. I want you to flip over in your Bible to one more place. Look over to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, before the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this is one of the clearest self-revelations of God to His people here to one man, Moses, who kept begging Him, show me your glory, show me your glory. And look what happens in Exodus 34, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgressions, and sin. Yet, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Now you put all that together and we learn four very important things about the Lord. Number one, he is God is always up to these four things. God is always up to blessing His people. He was always up to cursing His enemies. And He's always up to proclaiming salvation, offering, asking, begging people to repent of their sins so they may not be His enemies, but come and be blessed by Him. And He's doing all of this that He might put the glory of the power and the grace of Jesus Christ on display. Therefore, we ought to have the exact same Response that Moses had in verse 8 of Exodus 34. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Let's go back to Genesis 14. And let's ask this question. What is it that causes an old man? We know that he was 75 in Genesis 12. What is it that causes this old man to be set out in pursuit with, of a military force that has just wreaked havoc over the whole country without a hint of difficulty? I believe the answer is that he trusted the Lord. He trusted the promises of the Lord. But I, what I want us to do today is I want us to know exactly what that means. Is trusting the Lord believing that he is powerful? And the answer is yes. But I want you to notice that God's power did Abram's enemies absolutely no good. In fact, the power of God was the very cause of their destruction. Is it enough to believe that God is powerful? It is not enough to believe that God is powerful. Chedalimir ended up seeing firsthand that God is mighty. 
But I'm not expecting to see Chedorlaomer in heaven. Is trusting the Lord, does that mean believing that He is good? And we say, yes, that's believing that He is good. But I want you to see that the goodness of God is what led Lot to be rescued, but his captors absolutely destroyed. Instead, get this, the fuel for Abraham's faith was that he personally believed the promises that God had made personally to him. We have to get this. What made the difference is that God made Abram a promise. A promise that he would not merely be powerful, but that he would be powerful for him. What made the difference is that God didn't merely say to Abram, I'm going to be good, and Abraham believed that God was good. No, God said, Abram, I'm going to be good to you. And Abram believed that God was going to be good to him. Look back at Genesis chapter 12. Look at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you, Abram, shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Abram believed those personal promises personally. Now you want to hear some good news? Listen to Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's descendants, heirs according to the promise. If you belong to Christ, then he has made these promises personally to you. If you are in Christ, God has not merely promised to be powerful, he's promised to be powerful for you. If you are in Christ, God has not merely promised to be good. He's promised to be good to you. How do I get that promise? Here's the answer. Believe that promise. You you tell me, who is it that Jesus Christ offers himself to? And the answer is, whosoever will believe. Okay, okay, okay. But here's the next question. Tell me what I want to know is how do I know that these promises will be kept? And here's the answer. Because we know that the promises of God to us are going to be kept. Because. Follow me on this. Because there is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. We know He's going to keep His promises. This is the fuel of genuine faith. We know He's going to keep His promises because there is a man, a human being, with nail scars on his hands, very much alive, standing at the right hand of God the Father, pleading our case, working all things together for our good, and upholding all things by the word of His power. The resurrection of Christ has sealed the promises of God. I'm going to leave you to study this in more detail. I I took out some of these passages. I'm going to just show you one. You have to study this more. But Psalm 16, Preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in You. You hear that? 
The psalmist is in trouble. There are people who are telling you that if you're in trouble, then you're not really living the Christian life. You don't really belong to Christ. That's a lie. Jesus promises us trouble. In this world, you will have tribulation. The psalmist has trouble. And he says, in that trouble, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Well, how do you know that? Listen, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. That text is true of Jesus. And if you are united to Him by faith, then that text is true of you. We're going to get real theological here. But we have to do this because we must have our minds transformed by sound doctrine. Why is the resurrection of Jesus? Tell me, what in the world does a resurrection of Jesus have to do with real courage? I'm going to show you this. Look over to Romans chapter 4. This, by the way, is why later on in Romans 10, he's going to say that if you, that if you want to be saved, then you need to believe that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Romans chapter 4, look at the very last verse, verse 25. The Bible says he was delivered over because of our transgressions. And he was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves our forgiveness. Look at verse 25 again. You tell me. You tell me. Why was Jesus delivered over to death? Because of our transgressions. Had God not counted our sin against Jesus, Jesus would not have died. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin. It's impossible for Him to die had not our sins be placed on Him. He was delivered over because of our transgressions. But look at this. Now let me ask you an equally important question. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? According to Romans 4 verse 25. He was raised because of our justification. Do you see that? The resurrection, Christian, proves that you are forgiven. The resurrection proves that in Christ we have been, Romans 4.25, justified. Declared both perfect and pleasing. And let me remind you that those whom he justifies, Romans 8.30, he will most certainly glorify. In other words, Galatians 3.9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. The resurrection proves that you are forgiven. The resurrection proves that in His eyes you are justified, both perfect and pleasing. Therefore, the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God is for you. And if God is for you, then you tell me who can stand against you. Can tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, 
or nakedness, or peril, or sword, or coronavirus, or pneumonia, or the silly opinion of your neighbor. No. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. He's going to work even the most rotten circumstances out for your good. Because he believed the promises of God made personally to him, Abram could chase down and defeat Chedorlaomer. And if we believe the personal promises made to us through Jesus Christ and then confirmed, sealed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and we can witness to our We can share our money and our stuff with those who need it. We can lay our lives down on the street, on this street, and for Muslims in Iran. And we can face down COVID-19 regardless of what happens. With hope. And with joy. And with peace. Knowing that whatever happens, God is for us. And He's working it for our good. And that resurrection awaits us. That's the gospel that we need to be proclaiming to each other. That's the gospel that we need to be proclaiming to our neighbors. That's the gospel that you need to be proclaiming to your own heart. Let's pray. Father in heaven, faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. So Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit, even in the face, I pray especially in the face, that your Holy Spirit would glorify His power to overcome stubborn, unbelieving hearts and you would give us grace to believe. The promises that you have made to us, that you are for us, that have been proven when your son walked out of the grave. Oh, Father, I pray you give us grace to worship this Savior and to proclaim him to ourselves, to each other, to our neighbors. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the First Baptist Newton Podcast. If you want to learn more, check out our website at newtonfbc.org. We'll see you next time.